most of you are familiar, or by now, you know the Broadway hit Hamilton. Uh, it's been out since 2015, but I just had some friends go see it at Arizona State University a few months ago. So this thing is still rolling, rolling through the nation. And so over the past few years, if you have a chance to go see it live, which I would like to do and have not, uh, or if you had a chance to stream it at home on Disney or listen to the soundtrack, um, if, you've, if you've made it through, you know that the, the last song, the last song entitled, Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells Your Story, repeats the same question throughout the song. And the question they repeat is this, it's, it's who tells your story? Who tells your story? At first, they're asking it about Hamilton because Hamilton has a very interesting and complex story. He is born out of wedlock and raised for a short time remotely in, in the Caribbean with his mother until she dies, leaving him an orphan. And through a series of extremely interesting events, he is back in, uh, or he comes to America, and he finds himself a part of the revolution and making a name for himself during the Revolutionary War. As he rises in ranks and politics, he also makes a significant amount of enemies uh, due to his demeanor and ideas. Now, Hamilton also betrays his wife when he has an affair, and the events of that are, are blackmailed to him by his enemies. They tell him, we will release this information and you will lose your, your power and the things that you have worked for. So he takes it upon himself to publish a pamphlet confessing his sins. It circulates and brings shame on his family. This triggers the next event, which is his son dying in a duel. His oldest son, his firstborn son, dying in a duel, defending his father's pride in light of what has just come out. And so when, when the choir all joins their voice, or the, the, the singers all join their voices together in this last song, and they, they ask the question, who tells your story? We, 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 we reflect on that inwardly and ask ourselves, who, what does tell a story? Is the story of my life, does it all speak together? Will, will the sins outweigh the triumphs? Will the conflicts I've been to cancel out my, my victories? You see, Hamilton began the song by saying, let me tell you what, what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control. Who lives, who dies, who tells your story? And it's, it's revealed that, that Hamilton's wife, Eliza, takes it upon herself to tell his story. Though Hamilton is the source of her greatest heartbreak, her greatest grief, and her downfall, she collects the events regarding his life that he might be remembered rightly and honored. And then in the last line of the song, they repeat the refrain I've already said, but they turn it to the audience to say, who tells your story? We cannot escape this, this question of what defines our story or our lives. All of us have a story, a life lived before God, before His face. Some parts of our story we, we love to tell and rehearse. 
but other parts of our story we'd rather forget. We don't want them retold, and we don't want them rehearsed, and yet sometimes they even intrude on us. The scripture we're looking at this morning in 1 Kings 12 asks a similar question to the people of God, the question of who tells your story. This passage recounts the split of the kingdom of Israel, the moment they went from a unified nation to a splintered nation of north and south against one another. And as we read this story, it would be easy to say that uh, it's, it's the sins throughout this story, the pride and the hot-headedness, the rebellion, the mob mentality that tells the story. But the author and God's word makes it clear, no, these things may mark the story, but it is the Lord who is telling this story. The Lord tells the story. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I have three, three headings, three points that, that I want to look at. The first is that, that sin may mark the story. And the second is that conflict may mark the story. These are the two ideas. Sin may mark the story. Conflict may mark the story. And the third point that we'll see is that the Lord tells the story. But the Lord tells the story. So we'll start in uh, verse 1. I'll read through the first 15. This is a longer story, so I'll re- read it in two parts. And uh, this story is actually coming out of nowhere. Uh, there's no series we're in. I just liked this story. I thought it was interesting. And I wanted to see, see what would happen if we turned it into a sermon. So if you're like, what's going on? That's, that's completely normal. This is, a, this is a little bit of a strange story, but I think it's, it's really good. Um, 1 Kings 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. As soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon... Then Jeroboam returned from Egypt, and they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and the assembly of Israel came to Rehoboam. They say this, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days and come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before with Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall say to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs, and now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the king had said, come to me again on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, 
My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the people, so the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahiah the Shelanite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. This is the word of the Lord. We have a second part, but we'll just do that there. Rehoboam, these names are close and they're a little confusing. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, has entered this story at a bad time. The kingdom he is about to rule has been showing cracks in the foundation that started with his father. His father was unfaithful to the Lord, though he started with great wisdom given from God. Over time, he brought in more wives and turned to their gods and their spiritual practices. And in the process, he leads the people of God away from the Lord. So Solomon is drifting away and, uh, and Rehoboam is becoming king and he's going to reap what, what has been sown. And this, the one section that really sets this story up happens in the previous verse where Jeroboam, I I put a footnote in the bulletin so you can look at that later, but essentially, as Solomon is is declining and turning away from the Lord and growing old, he sees Jeroboam, not his son, Jeroboam, as a worthy officer, someone who's rising in the ranks and he's able to establish as a taskmaster and a high officer in his kingdom. So Jeroboam is rising, Rehoboam's father Solomon is fading And in the middle of this, Jeroboam is walking down a road. We're not sure where it is, where he was going, but he's on his business and a prophet comes to him. And the prophet tears his clothes into 12 pieces and he says, take 10, for the Lord will give you 10 pieces of this kingdom, 10 tribes of this kingdom, and only two will remain for Rehoboam, for the house of David, for Solomon's son Rehoboam. And this is the context at which Rehoboam is in Egypt. It's, it's, he says he raised his hand, so he must have sprung early, not waited for the Lord, and tried to make a move to maybe kill Solomon, and he fled to Egypt for his life. And so this is where we enter in. Rehoboam, who has been promised the kingdom by God. Jeroboam, who should receive the kingdom by birthright, by, his, by being heir of the kingdom. But we see right away some problematic things with Rehoboam. He's very headstrong, and he already has an idea of what he's going to do. For when he's first presented with his first opportunity to be king and to settle a dispute, he may have asked the old men, older men that were alive with his father, what he should do. But it's clear that he had no intention of following with them. For if you notice in verse 9, Or in verse 6, he asked them, how do you advise me? What would you say to me in verse 6 is what he asks them. But if you go back to verse 9, when he's talking to the young men, he says, what do you advise that we answer this people? In fact, the historian says he's already abandoned the counsel of the old men by going to the young. It's a new day in his land, and he's, he's, he's pushing with high pressure for how he wants to rule as king. We read this passage, we see his response to the people's request to lighten the load. And in many ways, 
this is the straw that, that breaks the back of the camel for the people to turn in rebellion, as we'll see in the next section. And I, I want to use the word straw here kind of in, in, a, in a way that signals back to something, because what's interesting about what Rehoboam says, he's going to make it even worse for them, discipline with them with scorpions rather than whips. It almost brings us back to Pharaoh, when the people of Israel ask Pharaoh, let us leave when Moses asks him, we'll go to the wilderness and worship our God. And he says, not only that, I will make you do the same amount of work, but you will have to find your own straw. He doubles their labor and output and, and in a way of saying, no, you will not leave and worship. And so Rehoboam has become like Pharaoh. He has become like a godless king ruling over God's people. And it is, is a signal that they are they're enslaved again. They are under, they're at very least under a uh, rule that is, that is a tyrant ruler presiding over them. And so right away, we see, as we recount these first 15 verses, and we'll get into the second passage in just a second with verse 16, but this is the response of Rehoboam to the people. And we see the break in the kingdom coming, the split of this kingdom. And if you ask who's telling this story you may think that it's the sin of Rehoboam, and surely that is a part. Sin is indeed marking this story. You see, when we speak about sin, we understand biblically that, that men and women, we're in a state, we're in a state of, of, of what's best described as corrupted. Though made in the image of God, we are fallen. Our natures are spoiled. We are, we are bent towards the bad. And think, think about this for yourself, even as you have sought a closer walk with the Lord, more of his presence in your life, more of his peace. Maybe you've hoped that if you could get closer to God and experience more of his love, then that would come through you to your spouse, to your children, to your neighbors, to your coworkers. And as you strive for that and seek the Lord, you, you see the gap in the holiness of God and where you are, and you see the, the propensity to sin in your heart the things rearing their heads that even surprise you as the Lord with his spirit works to transform and change you. Praise him for that. Yet you, are, you see the waywardness entrenched in who we are. And so our experience affirms this, yes, but biblically we also read this as well. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so our stories, in a way, are entangled in sin lest they be in Christ. Our stories are entangled in sin, and so sin seems to have a strong mark on this story with Rehoboam and his rule. And, and we can identify a little bit with what the people of Israel would be thinking as they read this, and as they think back to this king and this story of sin. There are parts of our story that we don't want told. Maybe it's a moment of impatience or anger with someone close to us or something foolish we said, hurtful that we wish we could take back. I was just eating or drinking too much or, or even realizing how much time we may have put into something that was completely self-serving. Not to mention cycles and cycles of the same sinful habits that we cannot seem to break. When we hear the question, who tells your story, we wonder, 
are these the narrators of our story? Is sin the narrator telling our story and our legacy a memory punctuated by sin? That is a dreadful, dreadful thought. But while sin has indeed marked this story, it is clear that the Lord is telling this story. Look back with me at verse 15. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahiah the Shelanite to Jeroboam. This is the prophet who met him on the road, and the Lord is fulfilling his word. So we see that while great is the sin of man, greater still is the eternal will of God who will be fulfilled by what He has said by His Word. His decrees stand in the Scriptures. Our confession of faith says, the God and the great Creator of all things doth uphold, direct, and dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least. We hear this and we see the Lord at work telling this story. But what is often our, our own impulse, our inward impulse? We hear this doctrine of, of providence, of God's oversight on the affairs of men, on His working and His foreknowledge, on the great and small. And perhaps we think, hey, hang on a second. I, I want a shot to tell my story. Don't, don't my actions mean anything? Don't I have the ability to, to change and, and, and work on my own story? Well, the Scriptures affirm again and again that man indeed has a freedom to choose between right and wrong. Indeed, God holds us accountable for our choices. He's holding Rehoboam accountable. The story wouldn't make sense if we weren't given the options set before Rehoboam and the way in which he was led. We are given choices and must choose the right one. And yet, even as we have said, the nature of man corrupted by sin cannot in and of itself choose the good. And so we want to hold these two truths in tension that the Lord is working in this story and yet Rehoboam is responsible But we need this message. We need to have this truth that God is the one overseeing this story. Because for us, the way we are tracking, often we are making mistakes and sins in our own life and we need the hope. We need the hope that something greater than us is ultimately working in our lives and in our story. Because if men themselves are weaving their lives forward and, and ordaining what will happen, then this is not only a story worth telling, not worth telling. It is a doomed story. But if God is telling the story, if the turn of the affairs is brought about by the Lord, the faithful one, the everlasting God, the source of all wisdom, the God that Deuteronomy says He carries His children as a father carries His son. If that God is telling the story, not only am I able to endure what is going on, but I have a hope that He will redeem His people. Sin 
Sin may mark our story, but the Lord is telling the story. And now we'll turn back to the scripture, to verse 16. Clearly, we had major conflict in the first portion, but here it becomes only more pronounced. And so the second heading we're in is conflict may mark the story. We're distinguishing between those two. I'll read verses 16 through 24. And when Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was the taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Jeroboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. When all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Jeroboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Here we have another prophet. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up and fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. You can see the fallout and the conflict by the way the people of Israel react to the way the king responds to them. When he says, I will be harsh with you as king, their response is, to your tents, O Israel. To your tents, which is a way of saying, every man for himself. Moreover, fleeing to a tent when you have a house uh, certainly implies you are now a nomad on the move without a nation. For did they not have houses to, of course they had houses to live in. This is a nation, and yet they're pulling the tents out of their attics and saying, this, this must be our new course of action because the king has turned against us. Look now to your own house, David. You're on your own. And, and the historian makes clear, God's word makes clear that their lives are now defined by the disconnect they feel between them and their nation. He writes in verse 19, So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Theirs is a story marked with conflict. A story marked with conflict, and we see Rehoboam's further miscues from sending Adoram to basically uh, be dead on arrival for his mission, and then to assemble more forces, more brute force from Rehoboam. I'm the son of Solomon, this is my kingdom, and at every turn, his answer to the people, his taskmaster, and his assembled forces, the Lord thwarts it. The kingdom continues to break. He cannot restore it. And here is the break. In these verses, in this, this, what's set aside as 1 Kings 12, you don't even finish the chapter, and the kingdom is now split. It's a bad story, and it's one marked with conflict 
And frankly, that continues. You keep reading to the end of their lives. Jeroboam and Rehoboam, this is the last thing said about them. There was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. That's the byline on their... It says they died, and then it says that. A story marked with conflict. And so we, we observe that it is not only our, our internal sins, our propensity, as we talked about, to, to, to pick what would not be beneficial and what would be an, an affront to God, but yet it is conflict in our world that often shapes our stories. In fact, sometimes conflict even more so stands as a stone monument in our stories, kind of marking before and after that conflict. But no one can change this despite what has happened, and the conflict is clearly defining the entire story. And the people of Israel must, have look, must look back and read this and wonder, this is our story. Is this our story? Marked by sin, marked by conflict, marked by the collision of sin in one person and in another person, the conflict thereout, before we were a nation and after we are not. It's a story we don't want to tell. Well, we started with Hamilton, and I'd like to move to one more musical near the close. And that is another movie, or a movie that came out a few years ago. It's called La La Land. Uh, L.A. standing for Los Angeles Land type of, it's a pun. La La Land is a musical that came out the year after Hamilton, 2016. And if you haven't, it's one of my favorite movies. It's essentially a, a story of a boy and a girl who meet one another, and they, they, uh, they're attracted to one another, but they have a tension between them, and that is that they both have dreams and careers that they're pursuing that are pulling them away from each other. So as the movie's unfolding, you are led in and trapped, like most movies will do, to, to want them to be together. But you're seeing that this is probably not going to work if they're going to be successful in the careers that they've chosen. And how many of that have even seen that in the lives of our friends as, their, as relationships go sideways because of that? La La Land represents that well, and it would be heartbreaking enough just because you like the characters and you're sad about the fact that they're not turning out, but... I had a very strong reaction to seeing that movie in the theater because near the end of the movie, what they do is they take all the the beautiful songs that have marked the journey of the couple together and they play them back and give you a a sequence of false memories of what would have happened if they had stayed together. The family they would have had, the children they would have had, how they would have still succeeded in their careers, but because they were caught and lost and deceived and in conflict, they broke apart. And it is a gut punch for anyone who's thought about this, the basic human questions. What if I had made that decision? What if I had done this? What if this decision worked out? What if that hadn't happened? It's, it's a wonderful demonstration of the stories we wish we could change, but we can't. They're done. And watching it, I remember thinking, overwhelmed by how much of my story would I change, different details, not main things, but when you think about all that it is, and you're remembered, of, you want to know in that moment that you're not the one telling the story, but that God is the one writing the story. 
It's clear in the text as the people return to this and they, they battle with the sin and the conflict and the chaos and the bizarre response of scorpions and whips. What happened historically to our people? You look right to verse 15. It was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that He might fulfill His Word. And then in closing, this thing is from Me. And if there is one ceaseless note ringing throughout all of Scripture at all times, in every circumstance, it is this. This thing is from Me. There is not a moment over which God does not preside in the foolishness and the conflicts and the falls and the triumphs in which He is working. Working for His glory, and yes, for our good, as the Scriptures say. So church, we need to taste this comforting truth this morning, this word from the Lord. And on the first Sunday of this new year, as many of us over the past couple days have trotted out some resolutions that we have um, to improve ourselves, we zoom out and see that propensity to make resolutions to say things will be different that comes from our image of God, that comes from God, that we would seek a higher good, more glory, more flourishing in our lives. That is nothing short than us living into who we are that would be not settling, but wanting more of the life that God designed us to live. So may we not be apathetic and lazy in our walk, but let us strive not to turn from the Lord with the sins of our heart, but to turn back to not be a home torn in two, but to be restored and back to the Lord. And yet, even as we have these goals and aspirations, we must not let the, the liberty that God has given us to will and to act in His plan push out the truth that it is still the Lord writing the story and that the eternal will of God is being manifested and propelled in, the li- in our lives, and in the lives of our family, in the lives of our nation, that that is happening because as we fall short, as we fall short through sin and conflict, we need this truth to remind us who is overseeing and who is working. It is the Lord, the one who brought about the turn of affairs. So take confidence in the fact that sin and conflict may mark your story, but it does not tell your story. For we have experienced a greater story. We who have been brought to Christ, been called to know Christ and be united with Him, experience a freedom from sin and that it doesn't, no longer marks our story, but the righteousness of Christ does. Christ who never sinned, whose life was actually never marked by sin, took our sin. That, that in dying on the cross, He would make right our greatest adversity, our greatest conflict, which was us and God. Bridge that gap in Christ. And now will this God who has done this great work and called you and done this work in you, will He leave you to tell your own story? No, no, He will not. He has called you and you are His. So let us follow Him. And let us now pray.